Today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show is brought to you by Diabolic DVD. For almost 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all of your favorite labels, including Arrow, Synapse, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, Blue Underground, 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. So whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice you've been craving. Shop online at DiabolicDVD.com. That's D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K-DVD.com. We're also brought to you by Deadly Grounds Coffee. It's the number one choice of horror fans worldwide. Nothing starts your day or night better than a delicious cup of Deadly Grounds. Whether you're hunting ghosts or fighting the next zombie apocalypse, any one of Deadly's 30-plus roasts will bring you to caffeine nirvana with the richest flavor you've ever had. Whether you're craving their hellhound roast, witch's brew, devil's night roast, or sinful delight, Order online at getdeadly.com for easy and safe shipping right to your door. We know that once you go deadly, you won't go back. Join the deadly revolution today. Be bold, be different, be deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee. Coffee to die for and zombie approved. Get some at getdeadly.com. Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. So we're doing things a little bit differently this time around. On this episode, I have four very brief interviews with each director who made a film for Welcome to the Blumhouse. As a collaboration between Blumhouse Productions and Amazon Studios, Welcome to the Blumhouse is a slate of feature films that showcase diverse casts, female and emerging and diverse filmmakers with a focus on family drama. All four of the movies I'm discussing are currently streaming on Amazon Prime, so be sure to check them out there. Amazon launched the initial four Welcome to the Blumhouse movies as double features back in October, while four additional Welcome to the Blumhouse films will launch in 2021. In this episode, we get a deep dive into four different perspectives on working within the Blumhouse system. Blumhouse is becoming a very exciting ecosystem for aspiring filmmakers. With their robust production slate across TV and film, Blumhouse is taking more and more chances on first-time directors and lesser-known voices. And in their Blumhouse style, they're giving all of their directors a ton of creative control, making them a brand that's really worth paying attention to. First up is Venus Sood. Venus Sood is a writer, producer, and director perhaps best known for developing the television drama The Killing, now streaming on Netflix. Vina was also behind Seven Seconds and the quibby horror web series The Stranger. Vina's Welcome to the Blumhouse movie is called The Lie, starring Joey King, Peter Sarsgaard, and Marie... I'm totally going to screw this name up... Mirielle Enos, <laughs> The Lie tells the story of two separated parents who have to navigate protecting their daughter after she murders her best friend. Vina is a TV industry veteran, and I'm probably not supposed to say this, but her movie was my favorite of the Welcome to the Blumhouse films, so definitely be sure to check out The Lie. Here without further ado is Vina Sood. Congratulations. Um, the movie was, was really was just startling and emotional and so compelling. Um, and I, I feel like there's so many, um, 
so many interpretations that one could make. And I feel like a lot of people, and, and I feel like this might be part and parcel with the, the welcome to the Blumhouse series, but all of these familial tales, I feel like there's so many things that people could kind of project their own experiences into, but you know, I'm, I'm really curious about how the, how the idea came together. Cause it seemed to arrive out of some truth, either personal truth or something that you write in the paper um you know it was actually you know the the lie was based on a german film called we are monsters and my producer alex madigan had the rights to do an american remake version um and she let me see the film i was blown away um there are uh many different elements uh that there are elements that i changed to make Mm -hmm. it American film and, and, and to speak from kind of my feelings about the film but that's where it started from you know from Sebastian Coe's original um, okay interesting yeah. but there seem to be so many very topically relevant elements to it I mean this idea of helicopter parenting and parents who were too involved in their kids lives um, and also just the kind of silent struggle of a lot of kids bullying being a huge issue I mean it felt super topical and super duper relevant I mean was that a subconscious effort, you know, the kind of collective unconscious, or was there like a real effort to make this a movie that really confronted these these important elements of childhood, like bullying? I mean, I think I think that that that's right on. I think there was a subconscious collective element to, uh, you know, the helicopter parenting. It's interesting that you say that because I had no conscious awareness that I was trying to do that, um, but what I did. What I do know is when you adapt something, at least when I do, the best adaptations always come from like walking in the, the shoes of, of the characters that then you have to create based off your experience mm. or feelings uh, from scratch. And so, um, you know, that's how I did the killing. That's how I did this. And it allowed me then to infuse it, even if I wasn't aware of it, with my experience or even my collective unconsciousness as an American and living in a world of, of bullying of, I mean, of teenagers and also, you know, this helicopter parent stuff. One thing I was very, well, two things I was very conscious of though, in, in creating it as an American story was um, making really, really clear that as difficult as it was to be in these parents' shoes, I wanted the audience to never be able to detour away from them. Mm. I wanted the experience for the audience member to be this insane roller coaster ride where you cannot get off the ride. Um, there is no escape. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to do that was a bit different from the German version or quite different is um, talk about the criminal justice system in terms of as it relates to race. And when a brown man and a brown child are the victims of a crime, how too often they or he is perceived as the perpetrator yeah. because of the country we live in. Um, so all of that kind of was brewing, you know, as I was writing. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, here we are, 2020. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing as to what you spoke to about the the sort of collect, not trying to get too metaphysical here, but the kind of collective unconscious and, and, and unconsciously channeling real perceptions into your screenplay or into the development of a story or a screenplay without being so hyperly consciously, you know, critical of it. Um, and I feel like by doing that, 
you can uh, be, you can put out something that is very resonant with a lot of people, and I feel like this movie is is, is really going to be that way. But I feel, um, I mean, as a writer and as a as a as a story developer and director, is there any sort of process for I'm kind of stepping out of your own way in terms of unleashing that part of your unconscious that lets you get in touch with this kind of work? Yeah, I mean, in my writer's room, we joke about it. And in a lot of writer's rooms that the best ideas come on the way to the bathroom. <laughs> um, you no, know, because then you're not thinking. You're, you've, you've given that part of your brain a rest. Right. And conscious, unconscious can play. And so for me, usually when I start out um, in, in creating a story, writing a story, I'll just read. I'll just read things that you know are on the periphery of the idea. I will try really hard to meet people who've who've had the experience of the character mm-hmm. uh, and just talk to them at length, you know, randomly about random things, what they do, but also just random conversations. Um, I'll try to be in their world for a while because I find that the research in and of itself creates the Petri dish, you know, that right. then my unconscious right. can play in and have food from um, versus just not knowing any facts um, or not knowing an experience at all and just trying to weekly make it up. The real world actually gives me way more interesting ideas that I can come up with myself. So I take full advantage of that. Yeah. I feel like that's a major part of writing that a lot of writers might overlook. It's the importance of exposing themselves to, to these different things that can just food for thought enable their writing beyond a you know typical research fashion you know i feel like a lot of writers rightfully so will 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 have their writing minimums like i need 1000 words 2000 words a day which is super important but i feel what i don't feel enough writers talk about is the importance of getting out and kind of being in person and and researching these things kind of in real time so that they can kind of make their way into your conscious mind so that you they can find their way on the paper you know so it's it's fascinating to hear that the best ideas yeah. are on the way to the bathroom <laughs> and i and i also feel like half the time i don't know what i'm looking for right mm-hmm. and, and what i think i'm looking for is probably a really bad idea and so um and because and so sometimes i try to really create these giant spaces of time when i'm starting a project where i'm not doing anything where mm-hmm. i'm just going to go you know, or, or cook a meal or so. So the thing that I'm looking for will tell me what it is, you know, versus me. This is the story and this is the thing. I don't want to dictate from that part of my brain. Hmm. Sometimes things are going. So it is largely a process of discovery then. Totally. That's interesting. And it sounds like that relates to your entire career from TV to, to now movies. And that's really cool. Well, I'm really curious. I know we don't have a ton of time left, but I'm curious about what was, um, I mean, Blumhouse is, I think, a, a very fascinating studio in terms of how structurally they approach movies. It's usually high concept, low budget, forcing directors to be super resourceful. And the beauty of Blumhouse is they give directors final cut, so it's just pure, unadulterated visions. But there's something, I mean, there's something so powerful about this movie. I don't know if I would call it a horror movie. It's got horror elements, but, you know, I... I I don't know where to begin categorizing it, but it does have, it is very just emotionally gut-wrenching. But I mean, from what I can see, I mean, there were no, you know, major special effects or anything. I mean, you were able to do so much just with the pure drama and obviously you had fantastic actors too, which helped. But I'm curious, what were the kind of guidelines for, for working within the Blumhouse system in the context of Welcome to the Blumhouse? I think that's one of the incredible genius strokes of Jason is that he gives you none 
none, no parameters. He's just like, I like your script. Go make the film. Here's a little bit of money. Just don't go over that budget. Just don't go over the budget is the one rule. know that that he gives his filmmakers the only analogy i can think of is what it must have felt like to like live in the 70s and like make films for roger corman you know yeah and all the great work and the greats that came out of that experience because ultimately we're playing you know and and we're playing you know in 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 a world that so few people get to like come in and and try different things Mm -hmm. uh and so I never felt at all like I was policed. Um, I think there was like an unusual amount of freedom. That's great. Uh, for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's why Corman birthed so many great producers and directors and writers because he gave them freedom and he allowed them to completely explore their own sensibility, you know, which is pretty amazing. Well, I know we have to yeah. wrap up, but um, I mean, last question, you've, you've had a, a pretty wonderful career. Um, wondering, were there any books or resources that really enabled you as a as a as a director writer producer um either in a business context or from a creative context creatively uh respecting actors uda hagen mm-hmm. um an amazing book um i keep it very close to me and i go to it all the time oh, well i have it i haven't read it yet <laughs> it's so worth it it's so worth it as a writer you yeah. know to read it even if you don't direct actors ever mm. um to know what the process is and to create, you know, that uh, intention as you write that you know kind of what the underlying kind of map is that they're going to be following. Um, and then there was an incredible, creatively Hitchcock, you know, yeah. I mean, I like to do the master. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, Vina, this is such a pleasure. Huge congratulations again. And uh, thank you. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you. All right, next up are the Dasani brothers. Elon Dasani and Rajiv Dasani are the brotherly directorial duo behind Evil Eye. Evil Eye is a horror thriller that takes place between America and India. Evil Eye tells the story of a young woman from a traditional Indian family whose mother believes that her new boyfriend is the reincarnation of a man who tried to kill her 30 years ago. The movie delivers the scares while pulling on heartstrings and crafting a family drama that is both authentic and relatable while being very chilling all the while. We hear about the brothers' directorial origin stories, working within the Blumhouse system, and details about the making of Evil Eye. Here are the Dasani brothers. Hey guys, well first of all, huge congratulations on Evil Eye. This um, has felt like it was a very personal story. Could you talk about the the inception of the idea and how how the movie came together and how Blumhouse got involved? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, interestingly, it is a very personal story and we have a lot of personal relation to it, but we actually, so it was, it was accepted by the writer, Madhuri Shekhar. Um, this was based on a, based on an audio play that uh, she wrote largely, I think, based on her relationship with her mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially that audio play was found by Priyanka Chopra Jonas. And then I believe uh, she and her company, Purple Pebble, brought it to Amazon and Blumhouse. And that's when we were involved. They, they had essentially assembled it as part of the Welcome to the Blumhouse package. Mm-hmm. And we as directors on it. And I think what we loved about it was we had never read something that combined Indian mythology and kind of like um, supernatural thrills and kind of family drama in quite this kind of way that really made them all sing so well together. Um, and I think what our pitch on it as directors primarily was the original play was all telephone calls. And so our pitch was 
how do you make this cinematic? How do you mm. make it visual, use visual storytelling? So like the underwater sequences, the kind of flashback sequences, many of that kind of stuff was kind of our additions and our thoughts on it. That's interesting. Yeah, I feel like there's there's so much wonderful Indian mythology. I lived in Bombay for about six months, so like I got a, like a good heavy dose of, uh, of of just you know India in general. But uh, yeah, I mean it was it was all just very refreshingly new and different. But it also was extremely relatable. You know, I feel like a lot of people, regardless of their family's background, can identify with you know that sort of a that sort of a scenario for sure. So what was the process like working with Blumhouse? I mean, I've always been very fascinated with them as a company, you know, in terms of uh, how, how Jason Blum approaches things where it's, you know, really low budgets, resourceful directors, but directors do get final cut, which, you know, is, is wonderful. And I think that's why they're putting out such cutting edge, great stuff. So what was it like working with Blumhouse? Yeah, so so they're they are an interesting company because they're sort of known for you know I mean you're right for horror they're known for low budget they're known for but when they when they say low budget I mean what we found out is what that really means is that they care about quality yeah and they every dollar to be up on the page I remember you know a few few years ago I heard an interview with 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 him where he's like what's your number one rule of filmmaking and he's like the number one rule is is don't let the waiters talk. Um, and, <laughs> Basic point is that use use that money for other stuff. Use it for the crane, or use it for whatever you need to get the quality or the actors or whatever it is. And and I think that what was nice is that they they definitely like whenever they would push us, it was all about elevating the film. They're they're like, what do you need to make this work? What you know, we think that it could be better if you do this. Like, and it, it was never mandated. It was always like, we, we just, you know, you should think about, well, maybe if you do this, it, it could be better. Um, and we're, it was nice. We yeah. were basically told, if, if you don't go over budget, you could basically do whatever you want. Right. Nice. Like, like, kind of like, you know, like, which was kind of freeing and said, you know, because um, 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 we have a background as, as producers as well. So we were very like, when we wanted an underwater sequence, when we wanted an, an Indian shoot, it was like, okay, these things aren't necessarily budgeted for. So so they were like, let's figure out how we can essentially horse well, trade. Or you know? and, and an example is that we we sort of, you know, is our DP pitched and and we then were like it was a good idea to just shoot one camera, which is very rare in a hmm. like this. And we're like, it will not cause us to go over time. Just trust us. And as long as that was okay and we got our material, then it was fine. And it went great. And like, you know, truly I'll I'll say one more thing about Blumhouse too, which is that like they I think something people don't always understand about them is that like when you do horror, there's a reason why so many horror directors end up doing well in other genres because mm -hmm. it's so primal. It's so specific to like nipping an audience. And I think what's great is they, they would often use that experience, like even like their experience as horror, like as a horror company has helped drama as well. Oh, yeah. been, you know, so. Yeah, and I feel like the best horror movies have real solid drama in them. I feel like some of the best ones are drama first and horror second. Like Hereditary is a primary example, you know, just that family drama, Sam Mendes level, like uh, family, American Beauty, family level drama. Oh, and now we have Supernatural stuff. Like, it's just such a wonderful combination. And you just care so much more. Relic was another great example of that. I don't know if you got to see that one. But yeah, and I mean, your movie very, very similarly, like you established such a, such a dramatic core. And then when the Supernatural stuff started happening, I think it it just it makes it work so much better for sure i mean that's that's something that we we really i think that that's how we see a lot of our work we we love genre stories but we love genre stories that live in a very grounded realistic real sense I mean, to, to us genre stories are a vehicle to talk about real things mm -hmm. and, and it's just a way to be able to comment on something with depth 
like domestic abuse and like this, but through a genre lens with quote unquote fun I mean, to watch. It, and, it, you know. It's also, you know, a horror film is not scary unless you care about the characters. If yep. you don't care if you ever die, it's not going to be scary. And so really <laughs> empathy, empathy leads to fear. I mean, that's yeah. the no, it's a yeah, it's a really it's a really good quote. I'm definitely gonna steal that. I'll attribute it to you though. <laughs> um, with um with the movie like this, I mean, on top of it being a real a really interesting story, it seemed like it did speak to some other larger kind of uh, like there seemed to be some social messaging behind it. I wasn't quite able to decipher it yet. I just saw the movie yesterday. But were there any specific messages that you were attempting to get across in the movie? Yeah, um, you know, I think the the big one for I mean, the, there's a lot there, but the big one for us is that we saw the film being thematically primarily about domestic abuse and about okay. kind of the cycle of violence that is basically come onto women and, and and especially the way that like manipulation of women happen by abusers. So mm. I think it's like one of the kind of fascinating things is people often you know attribute abuse as like the the guy and the wife beater like hitting his wife thing the kind of thing. Right. But that's a very typical example. The kind of more kind we actually did a lot of research into this like speaking with advocates who work with with abuse victims that the, the reality is so much of it is gaslighting is yeah. isolating like, like financial manipulation and you know like so the ways that like you know sandeep pays for her rent and kind of says oh you don't need your friends like these are microaggressions that are actually manipulations well, and also the way in which in, in you know oftentimes victims of this stuff don't always realize that they are victims so right. you have quality who she she doesn't even know that she's being that that she she's being manipulated, and the fact that she has this sort of past with her mom, and her mom is sort of pushing her sort of one way, makes her go yeah. the other direction. And you know, I think that there's this thing where you you have the mom and and you have Usha, and it's I mean, this movie is all about assumptions and about how these two women they both assume one thing, they assume that they're right, and they assume one thing about the other, and until they both figure out. That they're both right and they're both wrong at the same time no progress yeah. can can really be made yeah. but the mm. final thing you know that ultimately the cycle of domestic abuse i think is mirrored in the cycle of reincarnation so mm. like that's, oh wow that's what the best genre films do they they take a genre concept as a metaphor for a real concept so like you know district nine the aliens represent apartheid yep. in this in our case the you know the get out it's i mean it's it's all about the metaphor so like in in this case i think using reincarnation as a metaphor for the cycle of abuse was probably the most clever thing about the script it was just like that connection was just like what an amazing simple metaphor to to speak yeah. to it you so. you you basically take what is what is a is conceptual and make it literal so right. get out you you have cultural appropriation becomes physical appropriation. In this right. case, you have violence becomes become a literal supernatural <laughs> cycle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fascinating. And I think one really interesting thing about Welcome to the Blumhouse is that these are all family movies. They're all about families, and and sometimes some of the worst horror can come from one's own family. Um, and this definitely seemed to echo certain themes of you know generational trauma and cycles of abuse and things like that. Was there any? What was? I mean. I'm sure in certain cases you, there had to be like a lot of family research done. Was there any, um, what was the overall research process like for just kind of getting into the, the family element of, of this movie? Well, I mean, uh, um, I will say that like we, we, we looked a lot to our own family, you know, and our own in terms of probably understanding some of these dynamics. I and mean, our, our mom is very superstitious. She believes in the evil eye. She is yeah. very big into horoscopes. 
I mean, you know, whenever we dated anybody, she would ask us, like, what's their sign? Like, you know, it's like, when were they born? And so in that sense, there's a lot of personal stuff, but I think also leading a lot on the writer because she based a lot of the kind of themes on her own family. So we we would call her a lot just to ask her, you know, but also just the, the actors actually brought a lot to the table. Like, like uh, uh, Sarita had a daughter and talked a lot about that relationship. And obviously, you know, uh, um, Sunita had a mother and just like, they often would have suggestions about, I think it'd be more real if I said this or if we did it this way. Like Sarita, like she, she would talk about how, you know, that if my daughter were in trouble and she just wasn't, you know, listening to me, how would I actually react? Would I shout? Would I try to talk to her? Would I negotiate? Would I just go and see her, you know, and like, do I think it would actually help? Like sometimes I, you know, she like, you know, we tell if there's situations when she thought she was helping. In fact, she was just making things worse, which is what this movie is full of. People trying to help and just making things worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you guys have a pretty interesting background. I mean, a lot of, uh, there's a lot that you guys have done in TV. You have your own VFX company. Can you talk a little bit about your background and kind of how you guys came into the film world? Yeah, I mean, we, we basically, we both moved to, to LA in, in the 2000s. Rajiv went to film school. You know, I sort of worked in the industry in various sort of jobs on set and in brushing up these. And, we, we got into visual effects basically because we wanted to have, we wanted to learn about it and also have this sort of power over our own film, really. Yeah. We, got into, we got into visual effects because we needed to pay our rent. It's that too. And that basically was, was also a way that, you know, it's a way when you're early in the industry, it's just hard to get anywhere. And right. so you meet directors and to sort of to exercise your directorial instincts without having to directly apply to be a director because that takes um and like what takes longer well we essentially mm. because we had directorial instincts that served us well in other mediums so first as, as the effects supervisors people saw what like came to us because we could see it from a director's eye yeah then we basically that led to us doing international producing and directing so we ended up directing and producing units um all over the world in hong kong and paris and venezuela and what we found is that that led to learning how to sort of uh, do crazy things, <coughs> like operate in crazy locations and like right. places that are usual, um, and knowing how to kind of like bring. <coughs> yeah, it really is something where you know, that, that it just allowed us mm. to to avoid assumptions about how you're supposed to make movies. So yeah, because they give the second unit the most complicated stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's also it, 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 it's uh, something where it's like you know on. Like sometimes you're told, oh, you can't go to Paris and just and just shoot plates, or whatever, or or you can't go and shoot for for doubles. And sometimes you just have to ask, well, why why not? Why well, I mean, why you know, not? Like, why can't you do? Like an example, like and that experience really helped in this film because you know just, just honestly, when we went into it and and Blumhouse, and we said we'd like to shoot in India and we'd like to you know to have a, sh- a shoot be done in India and shoot an underwater unit. They were like no and no. <laughs> uh, I mean, they were great, but like, I mean, initially it was like we're not budgeted for that. It's you know, like it's a lot. Those are very expensive things to do. And essentially, we were like, okay, how much is it? Like, what is the actual budget? We ran the numbers, and then we're like, let's contact the producers we worked with in India, and we basically ran the numbers working with Blumhouse there, and it turned out to be fifty thousand dollars cheaper mm. to basically shoot it in India versus shoot it in America and wow. an out. And it was kind of like, oh. Well, well, I guess you can do it. That. <laughs> so you're going to be setting up the Blumhouse Deli office next, I assume. <laughs> but it was something where it's like it, it was like it. If we hadn't had the experience of having produced those kind of units in the past, we might have just 
sort of gone along with things. And I think well, mm. our, our attitude is always, let's think outside the box to achieve the best storytelling. Yeah. And, and honestly, to, to Blumhouse's credit, no, I mean, I, I, I was being a, little, you know, I'm a bit facetious, like they didn't say no, they, you know, they were just like, I don't know if we could do that. Yeah. But we were like, we really need something. They were like, okay, let's figure it out. Like, like okay, let's, let's try and figure out how we can maybe cut a day here or, or not do this, da, da, da. Mm-hmm. Great. So um, I think one one really interesting element of Blumhouse, obviously, is when you're working with low budgets, you're forced to be very resourceful. And I mean, your movie does not look like a low budget movie. So what are some of the keys to making a low budget movie look like a really <laughs> higher budget movie? Well, so it, it, it is interesting. So we have to give credit to so your own Levy, our DP, who we loved, is very is very used to to doing this. And I think the one thing that that even in reading about this is that um, you don't always need giant things to make something look good. Mm-hmm. And so, like many of the scenes in this movie were shot with one light, with one softbox, or with a single you know ch- china ball or whatever. Um, because and and so I think that that a lot of times a lot of filmmakers just think that they, they need all the toys to to make things look so expensive. That and the second thing is also location. Is that just find the right location and a lot of your work is done for you. So you don't you don't have to shoot everything and dress the shit out of it or to to dress the whatever out of it. Um, you you can just you know you can just find a good you know a, a good spot with with the camera. Just you know skinny things down. And like for example, I mean, like the 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 Indian unit as an example. I mean, that was shot with basically no lights, just following someone around with a very tiny crew in India. And yet, because it's so full of light and culture, it it looks really expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I'll add more thing is that in inevitably, if you if you look at a shot and you're like, I want to do that. Oh, but I'm sure that they had some expensive rig. Sometimes it's worth just looking on YouTube or Google or whatever to see how things are done. Like example, ninety uh, percent uh, of the aerials in this movie were shot with my eight hundred dollar drone Whoa. that just that I just you know was like you know car- carrying uh, with me. And any anyone can buy this. It's from from Best Buy. Whoa. And if those aerials, they look great. But they do look great. They really boost the production value. Yeah, exactly. yeah, and you know, and a lot of it's knowing that you shoot at sunset or sunrise. Like you sort of there's there's there, there there's very basic tricks to making shots look amazing. That that it's just they about don't anything. Yeah, great. It's about timing, and so you know, I mean, in that sense, like it's it is. You know, that said though, we we had an amazing crew, and the production designers had a lot of work. I mean, it was like dressing those 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 locations were not simple. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, guys, huge congratulations. The movie was really fantastic. And uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for doing this interview. Pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for it. Yeah. Moving right along here. Next up is Emmanuel Osei-Kafour. Emmanuel is the director behind Black Box, a thriller feature starring Mamadou Afi, Felicia Rashad, and Amanda Christine. Black Box tells the story of a single father who awakens after a car accident with no long-term memory and a vacant memory of his past life. After undergoing an agonizing experimental treatment, he begins to unravel the truth behind who he really is and the implications that this will have on his young daughter. Black Box effortlessly interweaves elements of thriller, sci-fi, and horror with a 
compelling family drama at its core, all of which is complemented by deeply compelling performances by the cast. In this interview, we hear Emmanuel discuss what it's like working for Blumhouse, lessons learned from his first feature, and much, much more. Here is Emmanuel Osei Kafour. Emmanuel, how's it going? It's good. Good, Great. good. Great. Thanks for having me, Nick. Of course, of course. First of all, huge congratulations on Black Box. It, uh, I mean, it straddled so much territory. In some cases, it kind of felt like a Black Mirror episode. Also felt just like, you know, good old horror movie in certain cases, but also just had a lot of thriller elements. And it was also a family drama. I mean, it's just so much interwoven into so much else, but felt like a very cohesive whole on top of everything. So huge congratulations. You know, loved every minute of it. It was really great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So this is your directorial feature debut, is that right? Yes, it is. So what was it like? Well, first of all, what was it like working within the Blumhouse system? It was incredible. It was really incredible. Um, I remember when I had my first meeting with Blumhouse, um, they, they met with me after they saw a short film of mine called Born With It, which was my thesis film at, at Tisch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just remember being in that lobby and seeing, I'm not sure if you've been there before, but Inside, yep. they had this wall of directors, you know, and many of which had their first shot at Blumhouse. And so I I imagined that I'd be on that wall and, I, you know, I dreamed of it, you know, never, didn't realize that I would actually that would actually be a reality, you know, so a few months the, later. You're on the wall now. I, I would imagine I'm on the wall whenever we get back to normal. Yeah, <laughs> but, right. But uh, but yeah, it was it was incredible working with them because they're an artist first company. Right. You know, Um you know, and so they they hired me for my vision and for my sensibility, um, and they they encouraged me to lean into that as much as possible. Yeah, I feel like that's one of the great things about Blumhouse. I mean, you know, following in the Roger Corman tradition of you know super low budgets, but with the low budgets comes a lot of ownership and responsibility. And I mean, I personally, I think that's why Corman bred so many of the best producers, directors, and even actors because he gave them so much freedom and responsibility. So they came out having so much. It, being so hands-on with so many elements of filmmaking, but also with such clearly defined visions that he was, that Corman gave them. And I feel like Jason Blum is doing the same thing by giving such creative control over to the directors and, you know, final cut for, in certain cases, people with who, who are doing their first feature. I mean, it's, it's pretty exciting, you know? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, it seems like it's gotta be a great system to work within for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was incredible. It was really so how incredible. did you get involved to begin with? I mean, how did the film come together? Yeah, so um, they saw that film, Born With It, and they, I had a general meeting, that's what they do in, in LA when you, when people meet you, yeah. um, you just kind of shoot the breeze, and they, I got along really well with the executive that I met with, and she, she suggested that, you know, I might have a unique, you know, take on a horror film or a thriller film within me, just because of, just the way I approached uh the dramas that I had made prior to that. Yeah. Um, and so she sent me black box. Um, I remember responding really, really like I read it like at 11 PM, you know, in Texas, back at home in Texas and just felt like I shouldn't have read it that night. <laughs> Cause it's, you know, the, the backwards creature that appears in it, it's just really chilling and, and unsettling. Um, and I, but I also remember just being really drawn to the, to the family, drama elements um, that Stephen Herman put in his original script. Yeah. Um, and as I was thinking about how, what my take as a writer would be and as a director, I, I always try to find my personal entry point. And so I, I thought that, you know, hmm. I thought Nolan's devotion to his daughter was incredible. 
and that's what really drove the story. But I thought there was also an opportunity to tell a story about uh, somebody, a man that just made deep mistakes, you know, just deeply flawed, and he gets a second chance to be a better father and a better man yeah. um, for the sake of his daughter. And it's something that I had seen happen um, to loved ones, family, friends, when they become parents, you know, they suddenly become the best version of themselves. Right. And in many, in many ways, uh, <laughs> having a child, is, you know, transforms you. you yeah. Know? Um, and so they loved the, the take and they loved the idea. And so we, we developed for a few months and then I went into production early this year. Wow. Yeah, I feel like that's, I think one of the really interesting things about this whole Welcome the Blumhouse series of films is the fact that they're all revolved around family and family dramas and family issues and things like that. Because I think that there's just so much, so much emotional poignancy in there and so much relatable, so many relatable elements, you know, within that. So that was interesting that they chose family as a theme to do all of these movies around, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how long did uh, the movie take to shoot? So we shot over 18 days. Whoa, that is not a lot of which time. Is, yeah, which is very um, for your for your listeners. Like, yeah, 18 days is really, really, really tough. Wow. You know, um, especially you know we we were doing a, a you know my script was a character an elevated character driven sci-fi thriller. Mm-hmm. You know, so you just are you are just doing two two three people in a room. Right. talking a very, very grounded story. There was a lot of, there were worlds we were building. There was a lot of detail that was needed. So it was, it was, it was challenging. Um, but, you know, I, I think that luckily I, I lived in, in uh, Asia for a few years and I was used to doing um, short films. All of my short films were really low budget and, you know, I didn't, it was all on my own dime yeah. or friend, friends' dimes. Um, and so just being able to prioritize the shots that were essential um, to maximizing the emotional impact of the film is something that I was used to. So that's, that's kind of what guided me in, in, in getting the essentials and kind of getting us through days. So shorts were very formidable for you, just in being budget conscious and being really resourceful yeah. and, you know, high production yeah. value on low budget, which, you know, is, is the formula at Blumhouse. Yeah, I mean, I would say, like, prioritizing, you know, yeah. more, more than anything, because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's not just about getting every direction it's about you know shooting the emotion shooting mm-hmm. shooting relationships and shooting shooting character arcs you yeah know? and that that was that was really important to me and i think that's it all adds up at the end because of that yeah well i mean considering how much emotional subject matter was in here and you have characters going through so many different states and phases a lot of high emotion was in there was there any sort of um, you know strategic advice you'd have for other directors in working with actors in getting them to those very very emotional points in their performances? I think there's a few things. Um, I think the one thing is you you cast you definitely cast for. I think directing is fifty percent casting, mm. um, and I think what's if you cast the right person then your movie's half done and you kind of just sit back and <laughs> whatever. Right. But I, I'm partially kidding. But it's like a lot of your character comes to life in just who you choose. Um, but I also think who you vibe with is mm. also really important because that relationship, that camaraderie, and that, that, that what's the word I'm looking for? That uh, chemistry. 
Chemistry, yeah, chemistry. That's the word. You know, I, I lived in Japan too long, so I don't remember English anymore. But, um, but yeah, that chemistry is super important. I had it with Mr. Shad. I had it with Mamadou. I had it with Amanda, Tosin, yeah. Charmaine, Donald. Across the board, like that's. You could be great, but if we don't have chemistry, then it's good. It'll be hard for me to get you know the most vulnerable, the most truthful performances. You can, but it's just it's great to be able to also have those conversations early on yeah. with each every single one of these actors. Um, Mamadou, we spoke for months before he before he um, got to set. Wow. Um, Miss Rashad, we spoke on the phone numerous times in the weeks before she arrived, um, just scene by scene, trying to figure out, okay, what is the most, what is the subtext here? Like, what what should your art be? This is what I think your art should be. But, you know, what do you think about that? And just like having a conversation about that. Yeah. And because we because we liked each other, it was easy to. Uh, to have those conversation and and they trust you when you get to set as well. Yeah, I feel like that's such an a, an important element of casting is is casting for chemistry as you were talking about because you know the person you see in the audition room is not necessarily going to be the same person you know two weeks into shooting when set conditions are difficult and you know things are going south they may or may not be the same person and people who you mm-hmm. immediately you know have that sort of I suppose it's just like gut level chemistry with that you intuitively feel you can work with. Um, through good times and bad times, because inevitably, making a movie, things do go wrong. And if your cast starts to turn, then you know it's it, it is such a nightmare. So I think casting for chemistry, I feel like that's a huge insight. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like um, I mean, developing the story arcs and developing the characters. It sounds like you involved your actors in that very much, which from my I understand actors really love, and it makes them feel way more invested in the story. Was there any process for that? I mean, did you have your your actors write up? backstories or was there any sort of story bible you know or was there any story bible in the context of the because you were doing world building because this does have a big sci-fi element to it as well i mean was there any sort of scripture for this movie no actually no no um i think i think actually a big part of my casting was also just making sure the people that read it understood yeah story that i was trying to tell on a very um fundamental level you know yeah. what who the main character i mean without spoiling the movie like whose journey is this that we're watching like what are the rules what is this what could this film look like um but as far as like having those conversations like i don't backstory is great but you know and i, I think every great actor builds their own backstory but mm-hmm. what's what 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 they deliver in front of the camera is more important yeah you know and so um, being able to, like, I asked each of them. So, in what way do you like to work? Do you like, do you like objectives? Do you like me to just give you facts? Do you like to be? Do you, do you like us to, um, you know, break like to speak intellectually and philosophically about mm-hmm. what's really going on in the scene? You know, and each actor was very, very different. And just knowing, so part of that those conversations that I had, you know, before we got to set, wasn't just the character arcs and you know, the points of these scenes, but also like how they like to work. Yeah. Um, you know, just knowing that helped me get through days quicker. I feel like that's huge. I feel similar to how a, a teacher like a, in a classroom will have students that will learn in different ways. And if you're a teacher who teaches one way, you're not going to reach the entire class. Where similarly, if you're a director, you have actors who all prefer to work in different ways and prefer to act in different ways. And, you know, being able to be adaptable to all their different styles feels like it's the name of the game when it comes to directing, particularly, you know, a large cast. Yeah, but 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 also to expand on what you were saying though, like I or what you were asking initially, like the film is 
you know, it's it's a. I wanted it to feel grounded from the get go. You know, I didn't want it to feel. You know, um, there are worlds, quote unquote, we're building. Like mm -hmm. when you go into the black box, when you go into when you go into the safe room, when you go into his memories. Those are obviously different worlds or different worlds with different rules. But um, at the heart of it, I, I wanted it to feel slice of life and grounded. And so, yeah, I mean, I I, I talked to Mamadou about you know how he acted in the real world while he was under versus how he was. And you know, in the memories, mm -hmm. and you know what his state of mind was in 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 the real world um, after he got out out of the hospital. But yeah. I didn't impose any kind of like Bible or anything. Right, right. So. Yeah, I mean, it, it did feel very grounded to me. And I, I, I mean, I personally love movies that are grounded but have like one sci-fi element or or one horror element to it. You know, I feel like it just mm -hmm. makes it so much more believable. Um, yeah. But I mean, that being said, it did. There were some sci-fi elements to it. There were different, you know, interesting locations, and you know, clearly, every the majority of what Blumhouse does is very low budget. Was there were there any keys or strategies to having such a robustly developed world in a low budget film? Like any sort of lessons and resourcefulness for being able to pull off something like this? Hmm. I think prep. Yeah. Prep, you know, prep is everything. I think I, I really, I think when you're working on an 18 day schedule, um, you know, which also means that you have a very limited prep time as well. Mm -hmm. um, you can't, you can't be picky. You have to be very specific. Right. You have to be very clear. Um, and so I think like in prep moving you know, and, and one thing I did learn is, you know, just really, it's worth it to to come into prep with like a very, very clear idea of, of what you want in locations, what you want in production design, what you mm -hmm. want in props or wardrobe. And that way, you know, you, you don't, you're not micromanaging all these departments, but you're giving them ideas that helps put them in your head. Right. You know? um, but you know, it, you don't have as much time to brainstorm or, you know, uh, experiment or play. You kind of have to just know exactly what you want yeah. from, from the get go. And the more, the more time you put into prep to being able to articulate what that vision is with references, with examples, the quicker you're going to get what you want. Yeah. You know? and, and I, you know, I, I think that's, that's essential when you're working on an 18 day schedule. Yeah, of course. Yeah, what was that prep process like for you, it being your first film and all, with, with a pretty substantial studio? I mean, were there any, um, in terms of prep, was there any protocols or strategies that really, really were helpful? You know, above, beyond the, the classic elements of, like, you know, looking at the subtext of your script and working with your actors and storyboarding and all of that, but were there any elements of your preparation process that were particularly helpful that came in handy? Mm, for me that's that's it it like because yeah. you, you like i'm not i'm not evading uh, in any way but like i think i really do think that the 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 arcs of your characters and the the emotional subtext that's happening in every scene is what dictates why you choose a location mm -hmm. why why you choose certain elements that are going to be in on on camera because yeah. you're, you're trying to at the end of the day that's all you care about is evoking the emotional experience that is needed to get people through this film, you know, that's yeah. why people are, are leaning in, you know? And so, yeah, that was, 
for, for me, like that's that's what I poured all my energy into when I wasn't, you know, scouting for locations, wasn't auditioning local actors, when mm -hmm. I wasn't um, building shots with my DP, um, when I wasn't talking to visual effects, like that was where I spent most of my time. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, that's all that matters because you're always going to lose things. You're going to lose locations. You're going to, you're not going to have time to do shots. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know the, the emotional core of every scene, then it doesn't matter how much prep you do yeah. like, on a tech, on a technical level, you can't adjust because you don't know what you're shooting. Right. So you need to really yeah. know the script inside and out, know the yeah. emotional beats, know the subtext so that mm -hmm. when things go wrong and things don't go according to plan, you can just regroup and immediately find a way to. And, and the th it's not if when things go wrong, it's when <laughs> things go wrong. Cause they all, yeah, they're exactly. always, you just never, you're, you're, it's, it's not computer animation. You don't yeah. control the, you don't control the sandbox. Yeah. So. So I think one of the interesting things, the other interesting things about all the Welcome to the Blumhouse movies is, I mean, on top of being really interesting and unique stories, they all do have a social messages behind them. We're, and I just saw the film recently. I just saw Black Box recently. So I'm still trying to figure out what it was. But from your perspective, were there any specific analogies or metaphors or that were socially relevant to this story? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I'll let I'll let viewers you know discuss more, but like for me, this is about the second chance to be a better father. You know? Yeah, it's about it's about you know just how much on on multiple levels, not just with with Nolan and his daughter Ava, but when you see the film, you know what I'm talking about. But like, it's it's also about just how much just how much will somebody will a parent do? How much will they sacrifice for the well-being of their child? Yeah, you know that, that's that's the message, that's the metaphor, that's the theme that is very relevant up until the last scene in the in the film. Like yeah, that's, if there's a through line, a thematic through line, that is it. But also with every character, you know, including the you know the the character that you you uh, learn about later in the film, like mm -hmm. it's the same thing with with um, that character as well. You know, yeah. so. Well, speaking yeah. of which, I'd uh, be remiss if I didn't ask what it was like working with Miss Felicia Rashad. Oh, she's incredible. She's yeah. incredible. I, I met her um, in Austin, Texas at ATX Television Festival um, a year before I started the film. And I was a fanboy, and she had this retrospective with uh, Susan Kolecki Watson. And she, we're both from Houston, and so I was just like, oh, would you ever like to do a film? In Houston with a Houston filmmaker, and I wasn't pitching her. I was just curious. Yeah. Because in that retrospective, that's all she acts. That's all she talked about. Um, and so I was just really curious. And I, Jay Ellis, my my one of one of the EPs on on our film, um, he was like, yeah, like when we were looking to figure out who would play Lillian Brooks, I thought of Felicia Rashad, and but I didn't think she would do it because mm -hmm. she's. America's mother. Yeah. She's been nominated for, you know, multiple Emmys, one Tony. So I'm just like, why would she do my first feature? Um, and he was just like, just write a letter, express you, put your heart on the page, and we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we came to it. You and did a handwritten letter? Not handwritten. I'm not that old school, but <laughs> um, but I, I uh, typed it up, and you know, I, and I, I led with the fact that I met her at ATX Television Festival, and and uh, she remembered and. Yeah. She loved the script. She thought it was really smart and, and and honest and emotional. And even though she had never really done roles like that before, she was she she loved her journey in the film. And so we we spoke a lot about 
you know, who her character was, just how to how to dress her, you know, how to like why she does certain things in the film, you know, and what mm-hmm. her motivation is, what's driving yeah. her. Um, she's she's a mother, you know. Um, she's so she gave me a lot of insight into just what her character spine could be, um, and yeah. But she was also just very humble, very kind, and yeah, like just super super supportive of my vision, like just wholeheartedly supportive of my vision. Like we had obviously like had a lot of conversations and discussions about you know different directions we could go, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was she was my cheerleader all the yeah. time. She gave me a lot of she goes she gave even off camera she gave me a lot of insight into directing. Oh, and that's just wonderful. How to, carry, how to carry myself and so yeah, it was great. Yeah, I mean, seeing her in the movie, it was it was just so nice to see her on screen again because I feel like I haven't mm-hmm. seen her in a long time. And you know, she was everybody's mom growing up. <laughs> you should watch This Is Us. She's great in that. Great oh in that. yeah, I never watched that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe she's, I will check great. that out. Cool, yeah. but yeah, she brought like a real warmth to the character, which. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything else, but it was uh, it was a very, very compelling performance. Yeah, I was really glad to see her in it. So that's that's super cool. Um, I know we have to wrap up soon, but one thing I'd like to touch on is um, you spent a lot of time in Japan. And it seems like J- culturally J- Japan is very meaningful to you. And I was wondering if there are any specific kind of, you know, either artistic lessons that you observed from the Japanese culture that contribute to your directorial style or just, you know, your overall artistic sensibility. I mean, what does Japan mean to you as an artist? Wow. Uh, <laughs> that's a very deep question. It's like, yeah, that's a very deep question. Um, it's funny because most of my favorite films are Japanese films. Um, and so indirectly, like my films have been influenced by the films that I love. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a huge fan of Hidukazu uh, uh, Koreeda, uh, who did uh, this film called Shoplifters that was nominated for an Academy Award a few years back. Um, I think, did he win? I can't remember if he won, but um, it was a really, really powerful film that won awards at Cannes. And I'm also, like, really, really influenced by Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Mm-hmm. Um, Cure was one of my favorite films. Creep is incredible. Um, and there's something about, like, Japanese cinema and, you know, the filmmakers in Japan that they lean, in, they lean into silence to mm. build tension. Um, and they don't rely on... Um, they, there's, there's, they allow they allow things to be said in silence, you yeah. know? Um, and so scenes feel very intentional, um, very subdued and just very weighty. Um, and so I think not only in black box, but in all my films, I, I, I think that that's something that I really lean into. And it's something that I, I'm drawn to as a filmmaker because I, I just, I just think that more is said when you don't say anything. Yeah, of course. Um, and in this film specifically, I, I really wanted to make use of, um, quiet tension and really build the suspense, you know, especially yeah. in those in those memories and um, so forth. So yeah, I feel like that's a huge lesson. Lesson is the idea of leaning into silence. Yeah, very yeah. cool. Yeah. Well, Emmanuel, this was this was really really great. Thank you. What uh, last question? What is next for you? Uh, I'm working on a supernatural horror miniseries, um, which uh, hopefully after we talk about later at some point. But um, that's what I'm writing now. I'm I'm working on the feature version of, of Born With It, um, which is that short that I mentioned. Um, 
And yeah, that's, those are the two primary things at the moment. Very cool. And can people see Born With It online? Is it easily mm-hmm. accessed on yeah. YouTube? Yeah, you could Google it on YouTube or, or search for it on YouTube. Perfect. <laughs> um, or you could go to my website as well, emmanuelok.com. Okay. Okay, perfect. Well, yeah. thank you again and huge congratulations on Black Box. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Next up is Zoo Quirk. Zoo is a British writer and director. Her short films have played in festivals up and down the UK as well as internationally. Zoo's first feature, Nocturne, tells the story about the ruthlessly competitive world of classical musicians. Inside the halls of an elite arts academy, an incredibly gifted pianist makes a Faustian bargain to overtake her older sister. What could possibly go wrong? I enjoy this conversation with Zoo a lot and think you will as well. Zoo, great to meet you, and uh, huge congratulations on Nocturne. How uh, how has the reception been so far? It's been crazy, yeah. Um, uh, this is my first feature, so for me, uh, just having something that you've worked on by yourself, alone in the writing process, and then with a small group of people in the production pro- uh, process, then to suddenly have uh, you know thousands, uh, even millions of people uh, suddenly exposed to your work is kind of a crazy um, thing, but we've had some amazing feedback, and uh, there's nothing nicer as as an artist yeah, uh, than to have people react to your work and care about it. Yeah. Um, what a privilege. That's got to be a great feeling, particularly for your first feature. And particularly yeah. because this feels like it's a very personal story to you. Is that accurate? Uh, yes, it is. I grew up playing violin, classical violin, uh, quite competitively. I was a very competitive teen. Um, and uh, I, in many ways, went through the processes that, that Juliet is going through at the start of this movie. Um, yeah. Only instead of Juliet's choice to kind of pursue her wild fantasies, I decided and realized that I, I was uh, neither talented nor um, <laughs> hardworking enough to make it in classical music. So I dropped out at 18. Gotcha. Enjoying the ranks of horror directing. Welcome. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for having me. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, just for watching it, it, it reminded me, it kind of felt like Whiplash meets Evil Dead by way of the perfection. <laughs> In a oh, funny way. Wow. I'm happy to be compared to all of those movies. Awesome. But yeah, I mean, I feel like there is something very personal about that journey to becoming a musician, particularly... I mean, I've never been a classical musician at all, but um, mm. just I know that it is such a rough road, and I feel like it lends itself to... To horror. I mean, that's what the perfection was about. Whiplash wasn't quite horror, but borderline, you know, in a in a big way. But just music and the pursuit, the pursuit, pursuance, pursuit, pursuit, pursuit of music. Um, I, I feel like there can be something maddening about it in a way, and I feel like it lends itself to real psychological horror. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that the deal with the devil narrative is so pervasive in the world of music. Um, You find it everywhere in jazz, particularly uh, um, early jazz musicians of the 20th century. Yeah, Yeah, like uh, Robert Johnson at the Crossroads. Exactly. And then uh, in classical, you've got Paganini, you've got Tartini, who's mentioned in the movie. Um, uh, Thomas Mann uh, wrote a wonderful Dr. Faustus, uh, where uh, a German composer, Leverkuhn, uh, I, I don't know if I'm saying that right, uh, gradually succumbs to kind of a syphilitic madness that, that is kind of supernatural in origin, potentially. Um, that's a great book. I, it's, it's something that the music is often associated with. Yeah. 
So how did how did this movie come together? I mean, um, I mean, everything that Blumhouse has been putting out under the Welcome to the Blumhouse label is really, really fascinating stuff. But how did you get yeah. involved? So I, I, it's my understanding that the movies and Welcome to the Blumhouse came from all sorts of um, backgrounds and all sorts of places. Um, but uh, I, I got involved. It was a very, very quick process. So I, I wrote the movie about two or three years ago and I was mm-hmm. developing it over in the UK. And then early in 2019, uh, well, maybe around uh, May-ish, um, Blumhouse and Amazon approached me and apparently they've had the script and read it and they just ask if I want to make it under this banner as part of this later diverse movies and I go well can I that sounds amazing <laughs> um, and from there it was just a kind of whirlwind we, we uh, developed um, the script for a few weeks then we were almost immediately in pre-production uh, we had four weeks of pre-production only 20 days to shoot so it was definitely a very tight shoot um, and then post and it all happened within about six months wow that's so cool and i keep hearing that about blumhouse normally when you're when you get a movie deal it's like ah they waited around for four months to read the script Mm -hmm. and then they did and then we didn't start shooting for two years and blumhouse is like yep they got the script they like it we're filming in a month (laughs) and we wrapped in three weeks (laughs) yeah it's super cool it's so smart as a company for them to be able to work that quick because they can get so many more voices out there get some more stories and there does seem to be seems to be something about the magic of filmmaking under the circumstances where you have to make quick decisions and you don't have higher budgets and you're kind of forced to be resourceful and forced mm-hmm. to really rely on strong performances instead of things like, you know, special effects and, you know, big, large budgets. And I feel like it's, it's a formula that's causing them to put out a lot of, a lot of great stuff for sure. Yeah, I think um, definitely it was a production process where we had to think about time and budget constantly. I think all films to a certain extent like that, but maybe this one particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's kind of great as a filmmaker if you know the constraints you're operating within. Uh, you can kind of solve it, kind of frees you up to solve problems in creative ways. Um, I, there are definite. There were definitely days where everything went wrong, and we just didn't have the resources that a bigger production would to patch right. over those holes. And at that point, you just have to think creatively, and you have to think what is the what is the core of this story, and how do I get the core elements of this scene across? Even if I don't get you know the one that I wanted, even if I don't get. Um, the lighting to quite look right mm-hmm. uh, in my eyes, um, or, or, or you know our DOP. Um, Carmen's eyes, uh, how can we still achieve the essential effects that we need from this scene? Yeah. Um, and low budget is all about that. Yeah, I feel like it's, it's it's such an important part of filmmaking. Even when you kind of graduate to higher budgets, having a background in low budgets forces you to be resourceful, which it seems yes. like is one of the most important directorial skills is to just be able to, on a dime, turn just switch your plans and figure out something that does work because your best laid plans when the cameras roll rarely, rarely actually happen. Well, that's awesome. So what was it like working within the Blumhouse system? Um, it was kind of great. Um, they gave us a lot of freedom. Uh, there was definitely uh, there are a few mandates, specifically within the um, within the slate, particularly. Um, they uh, you know they make thrillers, they make horrors, and um, you want you want to fit within the Blumhouse stable mm-hmm. uh, to a certain extent. 
Um, but that was only to, uh, I think, uh, I think that was only to the betterment of the movie um, yeah. that we that we pushed that way. Um, and it kind of worked for Nocturne to delve into, I wouldn't call it a horror movie, I call it kind of psychodrama. Mm. It's, it's fundamentally not that scary. Uh, don't, don't watch it for your fright night. Um, but, <laughs> but, but it is unsettling and it's, it's meant to be. It's meant to kind of put the audience off kilter and Blumhouse really embraced that. The other great thing I would say is this slate of movies is, is uh, diversity is a, a huge part of it. Um, yeah. All of the films are written or directed um, uh, uh, someone of a diverse background. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yet, this Blumhouse never presented my movie to me as uh, as a pigeonhole movie, as a YA right. movie, as a, a soft movie, as a movie for women. Mm -hmm. um, I They never talked about it in those terms. They just let the story be what it was. And uh, yeah, I don't think about my scripts in those terms. And I certainly didn't think about Nocturne like that. So I was grateful to them for not kind of uh, boxing it up. Yeah. One of the really interesting things I thought, uh, or I, I noticed about the movie was sonically, you made some really interesting sound choices. I mean, there was that kind of, I don't know if it was, it was kind of, uh, it sound, there was that one pervasive sound that kept happening and it was a little bit different every single time, which I thought was really, really interesting. Could you talk about your approach to the sound design of the movie? Considering that it was about music, sound would be really important, but there's a lot of unsettling sounds in there. Yeah, well, it, it's funny. The sound design process was a little bit atypical because um, COVID hit and the lockdown hit in LA just as we were going into the sound design process. Um, so uh, we had to do everything remotely, um, which was which was a shame um, because we didn't all get to be uh, in the same room uh, on uh, on the stage or anything like that together. Uh, but um, in terms of the overall soundscape of the movie. There was a version of Nocturne uh, musically, uh, which could have been very classically dominated. And mm -hmm. we could have used classical music all the way through uh, the film. Uh, but I really wanted to avoid that. One of the central kind of dichotomies of the movie for me is that you've got these very young kids who should be listening to uh, rap or, or electronic music uh, by all rights uh, are instead playing this very arcane um, classical, which is hundreds of years old in some cases. Right. And I wanted to reflect that in the soundtrack. So our composer, um, I, I deliberately approached uh, Elizabeth Bernholtz, uh, a gay gazelle twin, who is a British electronic composer, to do our score for us. And the result is this very uh, atonal clashing soundtrack that really Really clashes with our uh, the classical that's digestic in the movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was pretty interesting to hear the juxtaposition between the classical music and what your yeah. uh, what your composer put together. Yeah. So it seems with a lot of the other titles under the Welcome to the Blumhouse label, a lot of the movies have a kind of secondary social commentary to them, and it's not always immediately apparent. So I'm wondering. When it comes to Nocturne, is there any either intentional or unintentional social commentary that, that occurred or any larger messages? Well, I'd love to know if there's any unintentional social commentary. Um, and well, I hope someone brings some to my attention at some point. But yeah, there's definitely things uh, that I was trying to say with the story. Um, it's mostly about uh, young people and the way we approach uh, arts um, in, in the modern world. 
Um, I think there is a narrative that is fed to young people from a, a very young age that you can do whatever you want in life and that uh, all dreams are attainable. Um, and to an extent, that's obviously true. But uh, in Juliet's case, she's hitting the age of 18 and she's realizing that she maybe won't won't achieve her fantasies, at least not right. in the way that she's always dreamed. And uh, most people at that point kind of go through an evolution, and, and it's part of it's part of growing up, where you begin to uh, marry uh, your childhood fantasies with uh, the realities of adult life, um, and usually discover something that will make you happy, as opposed to something that will drive you off the wall. But in Juliet's case, um, she kind of clings on to that childhood fantasy. And uh, I think sometimes in the arts, we do cling, uh, and it's not always to our uh, psychological benefit to do so. Yeah. Um, art is a, yeah, it's a, it's a many flavored beast. Um, and it's, <laughs> it's not, it's not as simple as you're, you're led to believe when you're, when you're young. No, um, definitely not. Yeah. Well, the performance from Sydney Sweeney was pretty amazing. I mean, she went through such a spectrum of different emotions from madness to sadness to just, you know, spoiler alert, evil. <laughs> but what was the, um, what was your process like working with her to, to find these very dark places? Yeah, I was really excited to see Sydney in this role. Um, she's an incredibly talented performer, as is Madison, who plays V opposite her. Um, and I was excited to see both of uh, these women play roles um, that maybe were more morally questionable than roles they played in the past. Um, they both worked extensively. Um, but uh, I feel as though both V and uh, Juliet do uh, bad things in this movie. And I, I find that interesting. I find that more interesting than, you know, Mary Sue's mm -hmm. um, or traditional scream queens who always seem to be on the side of good. Um, the, our process, uh, I always like to start by just talking, sitting down and talking about the material. Um, Sydney and I went through every scene in the movie and we just basically uh, tracked Juliet's journey. Um, we talked about uh, base Juliet and other Juliet. Uh, she kind of has this journey that moves between the two of them. Um, and we kind of reflect that with the cinematography and our use of color a little bit as well. And uh, Carmen and I will work together to kind of use visuals to reflect uh, um, Juliet's internal world uh, as much as Sydney was reflecting it on her face. Um, yeah, uh, Sydney also has uh, this thing she does with all of her roles. She creates a book. Um, she, she's very about her book, uh, and she uh, kind of uh, invents and comes up with her character's entire history. Hmm. Um, and it's a very helpful thing to do because as a director, especially as a writer, for uh, an actor to come to you and present you with an entire history for your character, entire background that, that you, you didn't even put in the script for them. Um, it, it, it opens up possibilities within the character and uh, characterization that you maybe haven't considered before. So um, a lot of it came from Sydney herself as well. That's great. I feel like that's a dream as a director to have an actor who's that eager to dive into backstory and, you know, write, a, write exactly. an entire book about it. Exactly. That's great. So where did you guys shoot? We shot in LA. Um, okay. It was all shot in LA. Uh, yeah. Nice. And how long was the shoot? 20 days. Okay. Um, yes, 20 days. Uh, <laughs> it was definitely a, a, a tight fit. 
Yeah. Um, and I, I think, it, you know, we obviously had to prepare for that. So the, the script was really stripped down to bare bones even before we started shooting. And then we obviously had to lose more stuff along the way. Um, it comes in at just under 90 minutes. And I think that's basically all you can do with a schedule like that. So you have a history of doing shorts, and uh, I've heard a lot of directors say that doing a short is like a sprint, right? You can easily stay up two or three nights in a row, but with a feature, it's a whole new ball game, you know, when it comes to how taxing it is. Uh, and a lot of first-time feature directors will overlook the importance of conserving their own energy when it comes to approaching their feature, because a feature is a marathon where shorts are, you know, little sprints. So was there anything that was helpful for you in terms of conserving your energy and, and being able to have the endurance to get through a feature having considering that this was your first one um i'd say coffee played a, a large role <laughs> in my survival of the production process um no i mean it's it's always going to be tough uh, and it, it it really is a trial by fire shooting your first uh feature with only 20 days yeah. um on a four million dollar budget um and uh I, but I was, I was fine. And, and the reason I was fine was because uh, filmmaking is a team sport. Um, it, it wasn't just me. It was our wonderful heads of department. It was the people at Blumhouse, the people at Amazon, um, our fantastic producers, Matt Myers, Lisa Bruce, um, and the entire cast and crew. Uh, everyone is turning up every single day to try and create something together. And you draw energy from that. Um, and when things aren't going quite right or when uh, it's the end of the day and you just can't figure out the answer to a problem, um, if you have a great team around you, uh, people will help you. And everyone, everyone is trying uh, at the end of the day to make a good movie. And if you allow people um, to help you, I, th I think that is a key to not only you know having a, a creatively um, fulfilled uh, cast and crew, but um, to your own happiness as a director on set. At the end of the day, uh, the director is possibly the least skilled person on the set. The director <laughs> is just a, 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 a communication device between all of the departments. And uh, often um, there are answers there. Um, if you can't provide them yourself, you just need to listen hard enough. That's great. Well, Zoo, thank you so much and huge congratulations. Any uh, parting advice for all those aspiring horror filmmakers out there? Just thank everyone. Uh, we're so lucky to do what we do. I was very lucky with this project. Um, and uh, it's, it's easy to uh, forget to be grateful, but we must never forget how lucky we are to do this. I feel like that's huge, huge. Thank you again. All right. Thank you guys, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor. And on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. <laughs>